there may be a PowerPoint appearing today, which I've I've never really done before because I'm a luddite. You know, I'm a I like notepads and pens, uh, and I still write my talks on bits of paper with with things called pens and pencils. Everybody. Uh, but I did actually think I'd put this PowerPoint together because, by way of confession, what happened was we decided to do this series, uh, Famous Phrases from the Bible, um, uh, just as a little interlude between you know doing the Matthew stuff and other things that we do, because you know we've got a reputation in this church for systematically teaching through the Bible. But we think, well, every now and again we do little seasons or bursts of doing something a little bit different, just to freshen it up, keep us on our toes. Um, and I did a talk at a festival called Creation Fest, which Marie Old and Rich Old were actually there and heard this talk. So that's by way of confession. But I've slightly adapted it, so you'll be fine. Uh, you know, it's like a beautiful, consider it like a beautiful painting on your wall you just keep looking at every day. It's the same kind of thing. So um, that's by way of confession. But uh, because of the response to that talk and because of, and it was something I put together because they asked me to do it at that festival, um, because of the response to that from around the place and because of the the acute needs I often see surfacing in people's lives in the church, I thought, well, this gives me an opportunity to address this issue pastorally to the church. Because um, I just feel it's so key in our society at the moment. Now, one of the things I need to be super clear on here, there are acute you know, issues of anxiety and depression that people will suffer from that need serious interventions at quite a deep level. Um, I'm not so much addressing that today. I don't really feel honest. It's my place to address some of that from the front in a 30-minute talk. But what I can address is what I would call low-level disruption in our lives, things that make anxiety bubble up and surface. Uh, there, there are life choices that we can make and decisions that we can make and things that we can actively do to help us overcome anxiety and stress when it starts to surface. And I say this as someone who... You know, I probably have got a chink in the armour that when I'm uber plate spinning, because I'm a plate spinner, I love spinning plates, I love ducking and diving, I love running around at a thousand miles an hour, but, but like everyone else, I've got my capacity level. And when I, when I hit it and I feel like everything's crowding in, I can feel some of these things stirring up in my life. Don't think, because I'm standing at the front, lead a church and speaking places and write books, I've, I've, I've got this bit completely now, because I haven't. Because we can all we can all get got, you know. Everyone everyone can be blindsided. Everyone can just find things just crowd in unpredictable things that you didn't see coming, and there are things that you need to do when those things happen to help you get through. Um, and and having been around the block now in leadership uh, for over way over uh, uh, 20 years now, uh, probably approaching 25 years, and most of that time pioneering setting up new things or living on the edge and putting my family's finances and security all those things on the line um, I, I have known what it is to be moderately stressed every now and again so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit from that perspective too so it's partly coming out of my journey um, there will be people here training or trained in counseling or have other views and opinions or other things to add into this which is great. This is the list that I've got for you is not an exhaustive list, uh, but it's the things that I found will help me and stuff that I've drawn out from other people, stuff that I've learned along the way of pastoring people. So um, I'm not claiming this is going to be exhaustive, but I'm, I'm hoping in some way it will help. And the feedback I've had from other places, it does seem to have done. So uh, we'll take it from there. Let's pray and, uh, and then we'll, we'll crack on. So God, we pray you'd help us this morning. Speak to our hearts, but God, bring freedom to. It may be a spiritual exercise, not just an, a dry academic one where we've got a few ideas. We pray as we speak life from your word, so life would be spoken into people's hearts and spirits, and you bring freedom and grant peace. Be super present, we pray. Philippians 4, verse 6 is the key verse. And we're talking about famous phrases in the Bible. And it's <laughs> it really is, it is the uh, hit you between the eyes verse on anxiety. Okay. 
be anxious for nothing, he says. It's like, be, don't, don't be anxious for anything, says the word of God. Be in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, in one sense, you could begin and end the talk there then, couldn't you? You could say, well, that's it. Just give it all to God and you'll be absolutely super-duper fine. Now, how many people have tried that and found that's not worked? Yeah, quite a few people, I'd imagine. And I, I've, I've certainly been in uh, places myself, uh, personally, where, I, I mean, uh, more than a couple of occasions, where I've done what an old mentor said to me many years ago. He said, at some point, son... It's all going to crowd in on you and all you're going to be able to do is lay on a carpet, face down or flatten your back and say, I've got nothing left, here I am. You've got to help me and cast all your burdens onto Jesus. He said, and you'll be filled with the peace of God supernaturally and you'll be good. Well, I tried that a few times and the first bit happened and the second bit didn't always. I mean, a couple of times it has, you know, you got clarity a little bit later. Uh, but it's not always happened as immediately as that. But I, what I do believe is, is actually right to put Christ or our relationship with our Father in heaven as our first port of call. Uh, that, that's actually, our, for those of us who are in Christ, uh, I have to call it that way. I do think that bringing everything to God first is a great starting point, to, to be honest with you. I mean, you might think, well, he's bound to say that. He's, he's leading the church. He's a proper Christian and everything. But I actually believe it. I actually believe our starting point, our source of our life is to bring everything to Christ. But it's not quite as simple as that. So my first point is, uh, and sorry if the font's not big enough either. I mean, I'm just so rubbish at this kind of thing. I don't even know if it's going to work. But the, uh, the first point is, and I do really passionately believe this, is to make sure that our identity is secure. Which is, which is oh, that's so tiny. I thought it was going to be massive. I'm going to do a printout for everyone. That's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the first is, we've got to make sure that our identity... Is there anyone here who can help me with PowerPoints in future? Like, don't you're stressing me out by saying that. <laughs> now you told me not to worry, I'm going to worry about it. That's making me feel even worse. <laughs> We're joking. Joking, joking. Right, first thing is our identity is secure. Now, we would, we would describe ourselves here as a charismatic evangelical church. By charismatic, we means we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. Uh, we believe that when we're born again, uh, we pray that God fills us with his spirit, and that makes a profound difference in our lives. So we're, we're really up for that. Um, but I'm a charismatic, not because of things like gifts of tongues, prophecy, and healing, much that I see them as super important. Actually, I'm a charismatic because of one little verse in Romans 8.15. And that little verse, if you're making notes or you're... you're you really want to drive into this, and I will maybe do a printout for next week. Romans 8.15 says, By the Holy Spirit we cry, Abba, Father, and know that we're children of God, or sons of God. And it says sons in the original because the, inheritor, the person who received inheritance is always a son, so it's driving that point home. But it's for men and women, or women and men. By the Holy Spirit we cry, Abba, Father, and know that we're children of God. It's so fundamentally important. And, and what I mean by that is this. I'm going to do this super quickly uh, because of time. And some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but I didn't learn this until I was 26 years old in a really profound way. I was planting a church on a council estate, working with Karen. Uh, I had given up my job in London. We'd spent all our cash. Things are really tough. And my church, uh, started with just me and Karen, um, grew. And then it was like an episode of EastEnders or Coronation Street all rolled into one. It was on a really tough Essex estate. And basically what happened is that it was like living in a perpetual soap opera. I didn't have to watch EastEnders, you know, I was in it. And what happened is that everyone would start getting on with each other and everyone would fall out and everyone would get on, everyone would fall out. And I'd spend my time trying to make peace with people and then they would all fall out with each other, then they'd all make up because I brought peace to people and then they'd all fall out with me. And it was really horrible. And, and I had people turning up at my house two, three o'clock in the morning, I couldn't help them. We were working with drug addicts, prostitutes, people who were in and out of prison. It was, it was serious urban intervention work and it was very, very tough and we were very young and I was uh, totally ill-equipped to understand how to deal with it. I've been a very good uh, city salesman, but not so good at church planting amongst uh, addicts and prostitutes. It was very, very difficult. And uh, the consequence of that was that uh, I very uh, rapidly headed towards burnout, and 
I was exhibiting signs of stress, which I didn't tell anyone about because I'm a man, everybody. So I was getting heart palpitations. I was getting cold sweats. I found myself wanting to cry all the time. It was really horrible. And, uh, but I didn't tell anyone. And I didn't even have a dog I could talk to. And I certainly didn't tell Karen. There's a longer story behind this for another time. But the main intervention for me happened like this. I was walking around the council estate one Sunday afternoon. We used to meet in the afternoons because no one did church in the morning. No one really cared about church. We all did football or stayed in bed. And I thought, well, Sunday afternoons is the Antics Roadshow. Everyone will come out then. And of course, but they, they didn't. We used to do donuts and coffee and all the, you know, kind of stuff that you do to make people come along. It didn't kind of work, really. We had a go. Uh, the church was hovering around just a few people. And uh, I, I couldn't face going in one Sunday afternoon. I was so stressed out. Long story short, found myself leaning against a rubbish skip. Very appropriate. I was running late for the meeting, and I said to God, my sermons are appalling. When I try and do talks, no one's interested, no one's listening to me. I think I'm really boring. I don't think I'm a very good preacher. And for when I was what they called at that point a conservative evangelicals. I didn't really believe that the Holy Spirit spoke to us today other than through the Bible. And, uh, and this little inner voice said to me, which I now know to be the Holy Spirit, but it was so overwhelmingly powerful, said to me, yeah, actually, your sermons aren't that good. That is actually what I heard in my heart, and I'm, I feel my head going down. And then I said to God, but my, I'm trying to help people, and it's way outside my framework of experience. I can't, I'm not very good at helping people. And I try and help people, I'm like, I'm killing them off. You know, I'm trying to counsel people, I'm making them feel worse. And this little inner voice said, you're not very good at that either. You're not good, that's right, you know. And, then, and I went for all this whole conversation, like, I've spent all my money, I've got no money left. You know, I, you know I, I don't know if I'm going to pay the bills. And if this fails, this experiment on this church plant fails, I've got nothing left. I'm out of ministry. And this little voice said, you will be out of ministry. It will be all over. And I said, I don't think I'm a very good husband. You know, I got so bogged down with doing this job. I'm paying my wife enough attention and don't think she really loves me anymore, actually. Which is a story for another time. It's an amazing restoration story for Karen and I. But uh, this little voice said, yeah, you're not, not a very good husband either. Now, I'm now on the edge of, and I, it was like I was talking to myself, but I knew it was the Lord. And then out of nowhere, and this is how I know it was the Holy Spirit, this little voice said, but you are my son and I love you, no matter what. I was like, what? And I reached into my little man bag and I had my Bible, and I looked up son in a little concordance you have in the back of your Bible. I'd love to tell you that I went straight to Romans 8.15, but I didn't. I looked up son, and it took me to Romans 8.15, and said, by the Holy Spirit, require the Father, and know that we're sons of God. And I was awashed with this deep sense, for the first time from God, I love you completely and unconditionally. You are my son, and I love you. 100%. You don't have to perform you don't have to be a success. You don't have to look great in the eyes of everyone else. It doesn't matter that you've failed and you have failed in some ways. I still love you and I've still got you. It was one of the most transformational moments in my life when that really impacted me by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that day. And I couldn't manufacture it. I can't make it happen. I can pray for people where I've seen it rest in people's hearts for the first time. But often you see people give their lives to Christ, but they still have not got that deep sense of unconditional love. We are all born expecting unconditional love. We don't often get it. We get it from our Father in heaven. He loves us without condition. And when we truly receive that in the deepest parts of our hearts, it is not the solution to everything, but it is the beginning of the road out of all sorts of identity issues and anxiety issues I've found. It's what makes me a charismatic, that inner work of the Holy Spirit. And often, when you're talking to people, you can tell whether they've received it or not. Because some people can seem incredibly duty-bound, actually, as Christians. You see it a lot, living with perpetual guilt that they're not doing enough. Think they're not pleasing God enough. Miss that, like, incredibly, got to go to every meeting. Got to do this, got to do that. And their faith becomes incredibly legalistic. They've lost a deep sense that God loves them. And that can really teach you towards a very stress-filled life of faith, actually. But point number one is your identity is secure. And it's something we certainly want to keep talking about and praying into. The next bunch of points are incredibly 
practical. Number two, experience the moment. I don't know if you've noticed this phenomena where we are viewing the world through our phones. Have you noticed that? People go to concerts and they're looking at it through their phone. Or we're with people and constantly on our screens. And I know I can be guilty of that too, particularly when I'm under pressure. But what I've noticed is now there are so many distractions in life. They say the average person is checking their phone over 150 times a day. And the average working person can accumulate over 100 emails, not to mention messenger messages, FaceTime, Skype, normal letters. Uh, social media interactions. It, we are overwhelmed by comms now and communications. Do you know what I honestly think is happening? I really believe this. I think we're having our lives robbed out of us. I think we're having our lives stolen. Like, and, and we know now that there's a whole bunch of people in their 20s and 30s are suffering from chronic insomnia, which I think is linked to, they're calling it something like screen dementia or something. Like it's actually causing short-term memory loss in young people and it's robbing joy. It really is. So I've tried a little experiment lately. Um, I've, when I've been in nice places or done things, the way it's taken me to, normally like, let's say I'm going to a city visit. My diary, I'm like manic. So if I'm going to Newcastle, I've got to like squeeze as much work juice out of it as possible. So I'm going to back-to-back meetings and blah bloody blah and I could drive past all these nice views and go to nice cities. Do you know what I've started to do now? Especially now I'm self-employed. What I do now is I stop. And I actually look at things. I've actually, I know it sounds really weird, because we've all got, like, most of us here would have relatively good functioning eyes. But what I've noticed is we don't actually look at anything anymore. So I've actually started to stop and think, I'm not even going to take a photo, ladies and gentlemen. I'm actually just going to, I'm just going to look and I'm going to absorb. Because I think, I feel like that my life is being stolen from me. So learn to experience moments. I've actually started to do things now, like it's become acutely home to me now with uh, the empty nest syndrome, which I'm about to experience. You know, I mean, I've got one zipping off to London and Emily basically lives a self-contained life in her room and uh, we'll, we'll eventually uh, we'll fly the nest. Um, but I, I, um, I, I feel like watching my kids about to leave that I'm, I'm looking back now thinking how much of them doing their first steps do I remember? How much of them playing in the park do I remember? How much... Dinner times, can I remember? What of my holidays, can I remember? Now, I know I've got an ageing brain now, as I teeter towards 50. But you know what? Even, like, simple things... Like, I'm going to embarrass Annie now. Like, last night, we were sitting there watching a little bit of telly. And Annie's got a little bit of a thing about having a foot massage. It's actually very annoying. Because you're sitting there having a cup of tea, and suddenly a pair of smelly socks. It appears in front of your face. She's like, massage my feet. So last night, I went, get your feet out of my face. Then I went... No, put your feet back. I thought, I'm going to remember massaging my daughter's slightly damp feet. <laughs> I am, actually. I am. I'm, 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 making a, I'm making a decision to experience my life. And I've, I've had 20 manic years and I, I've realised that I've not lived my life well. And, and as well as I could. And I, I think it's a route towards anxiety. Because I think we're meant to have life in all its fullness. John 10.10. 10, if you want the biblical context. The enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life to the full. Experience the moment. Even on your drive home. Look. Experience life. Michelle Leader's writing some good stuff on this. Check her blog out. There is some stuff around living in moments. It's so important. You know, you've got to open your eyes a little bit, actually, and stop. 
And, and if you want to try and remember this, just remember damp feet. Number three, release endorphins. And the way that you do that is to do a little bit of exercise. I think a lot of people are probably dying before their time. God's got a plan, but you just don't do any exercise or don't move. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get in from work, I, I, my dream scenario would be to uh, sit back on my sofa and have a few uh, nice sort of chocolates and a cup of tea or a glass of wine. Um, but what I, what I have started doing, uh, well, actually always, like every 18 months, I have an endurance challenge that I tend to do, which makes me, like, and I go public on it, because that makes me do something. If I don't go public, I won't do it. So my latest one, I'm setting myself a big kettlebell challenge and you know, I've done some marathons in the past and cycling and stuff. Now, that's probably a little bit on the manic spectrum. But what I do think we could all do is go for a walk. Get some fresh blood pumping around the system. Before you go to bed, what a brilliant thing to do. I know if you've got little kids, it's a bit awkward, but take it in turns or get some cover. Just a little 20-minute walk before you go to bed will change everything. Do you know that? Just sometimes, just walking up the road, well, I've got a little nice duck pond down the end of one of my roads, I just go down there, I like looking at the ducks. I do, because they're permanently smiling. It makes me happy. And they can fly, and they can swim underwater and float. They're the ultimate animal. And I, like, on occasion, just, like, even if I'm going into town, I'll go the long way from walking in, because I like the ducks. But it gives me joy. But also, a little bit of exercise or a little bit of a walk, you don't have to go crazy on it, will release endorphins. And all the research says that a little bit of exercise, a little bit of fresh blood pumping around your system will reduce your anxiety and stress levels. So, identity secure. Start to look at things that are happening around you. Stop and soak up a lovely view. Experience the moments. Treasure things that happen in your families. Treasure beautiful things that happen around you. Make little kind gestures and remember people's expressions back and release some endorphins. Number four, put everything, everything down. At least once a week. How many of you here ever completely stop and put everything down including your bibles your worship music your anything you put everything down and just sit there and allow your brain to heal how many people actually do that no tv just here's a really good idea be alive i mean it i know it sounds really silly but how many people actually are like Allow yourselves to do that. Charles started doing because I've got I'm I'm blessed. I've got a little man cave. And I can go in my man cave. I know I'm blessed to have it. But if I didn't have a man cave, do you know what I'd have? I'd build a secret shed down the end of the garden. Or I'd just go and sit in my car. I go for a drive and sit somewhere and no one knows who I am. I found this to be quite important in my life because I've got lots of people pulling at me from different organizations. So what I do is I hide. I do. Sometimes I said to Karen, I've just got a few tasks to do, and I have, but then I'm like, might be a bit like a little bit late. Because sometimes I just want to sit. And do you know what? That's not selfish. I just want to be me. And I want to give my brain a chance to heal. It's it's a muscle just like everything else. And if you're constantly pushing stuff into your brain with no let up, you're not allowing your brain to recover. That's what dreams are all about and good sleep, which we'll come on to in a bit. It's just practical stuff. Be still. Put everything down. You don't have to be a darkened room with cucumber on your eyes. I know some of you might like that. But do do it. Find a space this week where you are just you. And if you find yourself, your brain is turning for the thoughts, it's probably because your brain's just got to recalibrate a little bit because you don't give yourself a chance to do it you'll find yourself feeling really good for doing it. Rest weekly is the next bit which trips into that. I've found, I've got to really work on this um, because I'm self-employed and, and because I've got different people pulling on me, 
people all work at different times and like seven days a week in the stuff that I'm doing. So I'm having to now actually be quite brutal on this one because I could do seven fully interrupted days every week very, very easily. But the other day, like just a couple of days ago, me and Karen were going through the diaries, which I always find a really stressful exercise. And uh, I, I just hate looking at my diary. And, oh, I've got to squeeze that in and squeeze that in. And Karen said to me, the only day we could do this particular meeting is on this day. She surely got any other day. I went, no, I haven't got any other days. So we can only do it on that day. And I went, not doing it. Because I, you know what I put in my diary? Off. And the next thing I've got to learn to do is when I'm off, is switch my emails off. Otherwise, I can't do the other things. I can't get me exercise. I can't recalibrate, I can't let my brain heal, I can't be me, I can't get any space. None of this is selfish. This is about being at peace so that you can be a good servant for all the other stuff that you're doing and not burning out. But if you're having a day off, uh, learn from the person who's messed up by not having a day off and see what he does to you. Rest weekly. Next point. Reduce agitators and depressants. Agitators are caffeine, highly sugary drinks, lots of stuff like that. Me and Karen do love our coffee. Karen particularly loves a quadruple strength espresso, a little bit of hot milk in it. Uh, and then she wonders why uh, muscles twitch a little bit <laughs> for a couple of days after. Reduce your caffeine intake, it's just simple. Reduce your high sugary drink intakes. It will improve your health. It'd be, you know, I've, I've only realised at the age of nearly 47 why if I have that, because I'm a, I'm a bit of a sucker for a, a late night strong cup of tea or coffee. Well, I can't sleep. It's obvious, isn't it? Don't do it. But also reduce depressants. And alcohol is a depressant. And lots of middle class Christians actually medicate with a few glasses of red wine after a stressful week and then wonder why they're feeling a bit low. Nothing wrong with a little wee dram or a wee noggin or something. Or a couple of glasses of wine with friends. It's okay. We're not, we're not like, we're not a, a church that's prescribing uh, abstaining from alcohol. But what we all say is this. If you're feeling down and anxious and depressed, don't put alcohol in you. Do you know what you're going to do? You're going to feel more down, anxious and depressed. So have an iron brew instead. No, don't, it's horrible. <laughs> it's a joke. Have something, yeah, put a bit of lemon in a, in a sparkling water. That'll do you. Or have, a, have, have something other than that. It will depress you. You hear me? Honestly, it will. If you're suffering with depression or anxiety, reduce agitators and depressants. The next point is uh, unplug uh, when you are with people. Uh, or even at times when you can be focused on stuff other than work. What I've noticed, uh, there's a new tendency with the phones. Um, if I'm in a meeting, what people tend to do now is they put their phone upside down on the table. And what that's saying is, I'm 100% focused on you because my phone is upside down on the table. I think... Uh, we need to start, including me, learn to go to another level, which is put the phone in your pocket, not on vibrate or in a bag, and forget about it. Years ago, before we had mobile phones, people just used faxes and normal phones. I remember those days. And, uh, and you know what? The world didn't explode, and it was all okay. But I can remember being very agitated once in a, in a shop, when uh, someone was serving me and the phone went and, and they went to pick up the phone and I was talking to them because the phone went, it interrupted because it creates a certain response in you when a shrill bell goes off. You want to reach for it and get it and it cuts across everything. I find a vibrating phone or a phone alarm actually does the same thing to me. Whether it's my phone or someone else's phone, do you know what it does to me? It really jars me and I'm going to be really honest here. I've noticed I have an anxiety response to the sound of a phone. If a phone goes off in my house or in an office or in my pocket, do you know what it always says to me? Someone wants something which is bad news. 
even if it's good news. But actually, it's a bad news signal to me. I don't know why. This is for me personally, and you may relate to this. Normally because in all the jobs I've had or every position I'm in, a, the sound of a bell means action, bad, it's not good, or someone wants something from me. So do you know what I've got to do? Unplug it. Put it in a bag, switch it off. I think, you know, uh, I've, I, I mean, I'm, I'm terrible for this. And I've really got to start doing it because I've noticed, I've been measuring myself. When the phone goes off in my house or in my hand, I notice my heart rate's increasing. Uh, and it's, uh, it's only as I've really dwelt on this since Creation Fest, I've realised to what an extent the, the, the impact that mobile technology and comms is having on my life. And I want to be, I want a good 20, 30 years of serving the Lord. You know, there's things he wants me to do. I don't have a heart attack at 55. And I've got a whole bunch of mates having heart attacks in ministry at 50-55 or in business positions. I don't want to be one of them. So unplug. Anyone here relate to the phone stressing them out? A whole bunch of you. So I'm not saying unplug it all the time or we won't get any work done. But, but start to be a little bit disciplined. And, and don't just turn it face down. Put it in a bag. Have periods of time when it's not on. I've noticed something else. One of the first things people do now when they wake up in the morning is what? Reach for the phone. Like, what is going on? What is going on? Now, I'm, I'm, you know, I've changed my pattern of existence. I used to get up every day at half five. Uh, I now get up, I wake up somewhere between six and half six, but I try not to get out of bed then because I'm trying to teach myself to laze around just a little bit. But what I've noticed I do is, when the, phone, when, when the phone's next to me on the bedside table, the first thing I do is reach for and I get absorbed with work. So I've actually started working in bed at 5.50 or 6 o'clock. That's ridiculous. It's crazy. Do you know what you need to do instead? Have a little pray. Give the day to God. Have some cornflakes. Start working in bed at 5.50. It's crazy. And people wonder why they're feeling anxious. Learn to say no is the next thing. Some people need to learn to say no because they're overcrowding their lives. Some people need to say yes because they're not doing enough. And that is equally quite stressful when you start worrying about what your purpose is or what you're about. But learn to say no. And I suppose we need to drill into why it is that we can't say no to things. Why do you think it is? Why do you think it is you can't say no? Approval, letting people down. Yeah, losing an opportunity. Particularly if you're like, you know, trying to get work in. Or you're pleasing your boss. Or you don't upset someone. Do you know what I think now? With a few years behind me, if you let someone down, you say no to something that someone wants you to do, and they're so upset with you that they're going to scupper your promotion opportunity, or they're going to be cross with you, well, they're not all that then, are they? Just say no to one thing, because you've got a bit of a life, and they're going to be that cross with you. Well, I don't, I don't think it really matters then. As long as you're not saying no and being obstinate all the time, like you're not being unreasonable, there's balance, isn't there? But I think it goes back to point one. If your identity is secure in Christ, then your approval comes from your Father in heaven. And don't worry so much if you upset someone. Now, I'm speaking here as someone who's been a leader and a manager of a lot of people for many years. And to be honest with you, being on the other side of the fence and people say no to you, unless it's like a really critical thing, which can be a little bit exasperating, or you're really under pressure. When most people say to me, oh no, I can't do that, a leader or a manager will immediately be on to the next person who can help them do it and won't even think about it again. So don't worry about it. But the most important thing is your identity is in Christ. The next toxic thing that causes anxiety for me is comparisons. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are uniquely made for a unique purpose that God has planned for you. One of the things that plagues followers of Jesus 
or in fact anyone anywhere, is comparing yourself to other people. You know, whether it's a stereotypical body image, whether it's someone's gift and abilities in a certain area, there are always going to be people who are better speakers than you if you're a speaker, a better accountant than you if you're an accountant, a better manager than you if you're a manager, a better artist than you if you're an artist. There's always going to be people who are better than you. There's always going to be people who are not as good as you. Why worry about it? God has made you for a unique purpose. There is, I fully believe this, there is something that God has made you uniquely to do. You just got to find it. But you won't find it if you keep worrying about what everyone else is doing. So find the thing that God has got for you and embrace that and don't worry about other people. It actually took me to the age of 28 to realise that I'd never look like a Levi Jean 501 model. It was a very crushing revelation. But now I quite like the fact I look more like odd job. And I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. I'm like an English Cockney odd job and, uh, from James Bond. And I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Don't compare yourself to other people. Be who God's made you to be. And enjoy it. How much life is being stolen from you worrying about what everyone else is doing? Including in church. Just a word here, a little deviation in terms of church life. In church, people will come in with different passions, skills, gifts and abilities. This is just a little aside. There will be people who are acutely prophetic. People who are amazing at music. People who are highly gifted children's workers. People who are crazy evangelists. People who are gifted pastorally. Entrepreneurs, duckers and divers. People whose heart burns with passion for the poor and injustice and tackling injustice issues. And when people acutely carry those things, they will, they will often have complete tunnel vision on that thing. So the evangelist will say, stuff the prophetic. You know, and the stupid pastoral stuff. If you don't tell people about Jesus, people are going to go to hell. And then, the, and then the Bible teacher, mad people, will say, but you know, it's no point in winning people to Christ if you're not teaching the Bible and teaching them how to be Christians. And then the prayer warriors will say, but what's the point in all that if you're not praying? Nothing's going to happen. And then the justice person saying, you and your stupid holy huddles and these people who are homeless, what are you going to do about that? And it's all like smashing in together. It can actually cause quite a little bit of anxiety in and of itself when you're living in community. Do you know what we've just got to do? Love all the different things that people have got and get really excited about it. Let people go and do their things and all the passion. Don't worry about that person's amazing gift. Now, if you see someone being given a role in the church and you think, well, I haven't had that yet, that's comparisons. Don't worry about that. Just get on with the thing that God's called you to do. I'm telling you, it's the road to peace. And it's a road to a harmonious, unified church, which, praise God, we have. Next point is get good sleep. I was a tyrant when it came to sleep. Um, I, uh, I probably, realistically, only need five or six hours. And because I'm sort of like a little bit, uh, probably a high-performing ADHD type person, I always used to worry what I was missing out on when I was asleep. Uh, and then I wake up and I sort of check my phone and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I am um, I am changing. I am I am trying to learn to be, in a very godly way, moderately lazy. So, um, and what I mean by that is I'm still working hard, but I don't feel guilty about going to bed early. Do you know what? I've actually quite enjoyed going to bed early and reading my books. Sometimes you might get emails from me and I'm actually laying on my bed. I've done that a few times lately. And Karen's like, where you been? I've been working, laying on my bed. Because I just, I don't want to burn out. But what I found is, and I don't feel guilty about this anymore. I think a good dollar per sleep, <coughs> laying around in bed a bit, eight, nine hours, maybe you're ten, some of you might need ten. Who needs eight? Who needs more than eight? Look at that. Anyone need more than 15? <laughs> Here's the thing. You've all got your own body clocks. You've all got your own body clocks. Don't punish yourself. Get some rest. I've learned this the hard way. If you need to go to bed, go to bed. I mean, now I have all these... I mean, me and Karen are out in London. We've got two late nights coming up. 
mates are going to eat in some very posh restaurants, actually. It's quite cool. And uh, we'll be in these posh places, and it's going to be late. But, you know, part of me is, like, quite looking forward to that dinner in that, that restaurant. It's going to be quite nice. But the other part of me is, but I'm also quite looking forward to getting to bed and reading my sci-fi book on my Kindle. Because I'm, I'm getting used to it now. Rest a little bit. Get good sleep. It does mitigate stress. Next one is a difficult one. Make life choices that bring life. No matter how hard that choice is. I, um, I realised something about myself. Um, and I can only do this personally because I think you've got to preach out your failures as well as successes. And my failure is this. When I came to Christ, all I wanted to do was tell people about Jesus. They overwhelmed me. I suppose I'm a classic evangelist. I just wanted to tell people about Jesus. But then I realised I had a couple of other bits going on as well. Like I could think strategically and I could lead people and I could see into the future like with organisations and stuff. And because of that, you rapidly get promoted. You know, I don't know anything I went after. I just wanted to tell people about Jesus in, in pubs and fields and stuff. That's all I wanted to do. And then suddenly you find yourself, years later, being an executive in big organisations. Several times over. Uh, in different places. With loads of direct reports and huge accounts to look at and masses of pressure and getting up early and going to bed late and... And then you realise that actually, for the last 10, 15 years, you know, you're getting paid better and you're getting all this kudos and you get a nice office and maybe a better company car and all of that stuff. But you're not living life. You know, you, you, you're not experiencing the moments and your identity starts to slip and becomes in what you're doing. And, and that's actually quite toxic. And I found myself starting to have fantasies about driving a lorry or being a postman. <laughs> actually, it's my fantasy job is a long-distance lorry driver. People don't realise that, but actually, I just want to be a long-distance lorry driver. It goes to the Arctic Circle. <laughs> Probably there's no one there. <laughs> that's, that's the fantasy job, you know, when I'm really under pressure. But, but what I realised was this. Uh, I didn't have the courage to lay it all down and trust God with my life. And many of you know that on my birthday in February, I made a life choice. And I decided to lay down a big job that I felt was possibly internally wounding me uh, to be there when my kids left and to invest time into this church and trust God with the rest of it. And I remember people saying to me, it was only six months ago, what are you going to do? How are you going to pay the bills? I'm like, I think I'll drive an Uber in Sheffield. Or I'll get a motorcycle courier job. Or I'll drive a van. I'll do what I've got to do. I'll sell the house. I'll do what I've got to do to have some life. Because I'd rather live my life than have a platform. And the weird thing was, I laid it all down and God brought a whole bunch of stuff back that is more attuned to what I felt when I first came to Christ. So I've got all this peace now and sense of, wow, why didn't I do this years ago? But at the time, it felt like a really tough decision. And Matt Summerfield, who heads up a church in Hitchin, and used to be president of Urban Saints, he said to me, you make a right choice for your life and six months later, you're going to feel fitter, healthier, be sleeping better, more in tune with your family, loving church, loving it. He said, I'm absolutely going to you. But actually quitting my job was the hardest thing at that point I can remember doing. Looking at my mate's eyes and saying, I've got, I've got to do this. Well, a, I feel God's telling me to, but B, I've got to make a decision that's bringing life. It was only when I quit after I realised I was getting mild chest pains, my fingers would be shaking, I am not sleeping, I was getting headaches. How mad is that? What's the point? Make a life choice that brings you life. It may feel financially costly, but at least you'll be living. And it may not be work, it could be other stuff. But some of you are stressed and anxious because you're putting stuff in your lives that's actually wounding you. 
And it's not worth it. I mean, sometimes in life, there are seasons of battling through oppression because the darkest hour is before the dawn. And you just have to battle through. And I've still got challenges. But in the big picture, make life choices that bring life. It's amazing how many people speak to me. And, and when I go around the scene, they say, well, this is the thing that's really stressing me out. And I just say, well, why don't, why don't you just stop then? I say, well, I've got this and you know, I've got a horse. Oh, well, get rid of it. You know, I've got this bill. and I, Well, sell it. Make choices that bring life, I think. Next two, very quick. Get some perspective. Matthew 6. Emily was talking to me about this yesterday, funny enough. But Matthew 6 is so powerful, isn't it? It talks about worry. God says, it's actually called in the NASB the cure for the anxiety, for anxiety. For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life, what you'll eat, what you drink, about your body. Uh, is life not more than food or the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they don't sow nor reap into barns. And your heavenly Father feeds them, but they're not worth much more than you. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, etc., etc., etc. And then it says at the end, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I have a little strategy that I use for personal anxiety and worry, and I've been doing this for years. Uh, and what I do is this. I think about the problem. You see, I know this is intensely practical, but I think about the problem, and then I get it in perspective, and I say to myself, is this thing going to hurt me in a week's time? Will I remember what this problem is in a month's time? Will this problem be affecting my life in a year's time? Most problems have now disappeared to a speck by that point because I put some life perspective on it. If it's still saying to me, this is going to be a really big thing in a year's time, then I will really address it. If it's not, I'm learning to let a lot of stuff go. Because I've found, here's what I've learned in life, a lot of things do actually sort themselves out. Things just have a way of, generally speaking, sorting themselves out. Now, over the last couple of years, I have had a couple of, like, well, probably over the last three years, I remember one time I had a little, little health scare with a thing, and I went and see the doctors, which is very rare for me. Uh, I don't really, really get ill to be honest, uh, thankfully. And uh, I went into the doctors with this concern and after a couple of visits, um, one of the options could have been mildly sinister. And uh, I remember standing outside the doctor's surgery at that point thinking, well, mm, might not be good, but, Well, will this affect me in a month? Probably. Will it affect me in a year? Could do. Could it affect me in 10 years? Mm, probably, actually. Could, might not be good. Um, then I thought, but I did meet Jesus when I was 18. And I've been telling people ever since that when we die, we get to be with him. So, it's been, this is all outside of doctor's surgery. My house faces my house. So I think I've got to get this sorted for Ozzy Karen. So I'm like, think in the big scheme of things, it's going to be all right. Because I've read the last page. So I know it's going to be all right. I'm not being trite. I mean, I mean it. And I actually I had a real moment of encounter with the Lord. Where I thought, actually, do you know what? If your life is hidden in Christ... It is going to be all right. Because one day, as I've said many times, you'll wake up as if you've woken up from a dream. And then you'll be really living. So even sometimes in the worst moments, you can get a handle on peace. But I do do that little exercise. And the final thing I've found is, is to live for something beyond yourself. Lots of people, I'm not saying everyone, but lots of people who suffer with anxiety do tend to, and I don't want this to sound hard, because I've noticed this happens to me, focus in on everything that's happening in their lives. 
But if you consider the lives of other people, where you live for something beyond yourself, even one aspect of your life, A, it gives you perspective. Um, and B, it diverts attention, actually. You start using your brain for the needs of others, which is very healing, actually. And it unlocks love and compassion and grace and all kinds of things that are trapped inside you sometimes when you're so looking down on your issues. Um, but I think the other thing it does when you live for someone else, when, it's, when you live for something beyond yourself, which is Christ, actually it orientates your gaze. Metaphorically, spiritually, your, your head turns upwards. When you lift your head to Christ and you live for him, you're internally, everything starts to lift up, I find. You look to the light, not the dark tunnel. And you look to the light, not the dark tunnel, by serving others, considering the needs of the poor, the broken. Not to the point where you're duty-bound, that ruins you. But just that part of your heart and your brain to live for others is actually a very, very healing thing. It's why worship is so important. Worship is so important because it's so selfless. I don't have a particular passion for songs that talk about me all the time. We need some. But I love songs that put our attention on the living God because it lifts our head up to heaven spiritually and changes our orientation. So get some worship music on. You know, that's why devotional time is so important because it lifts your gaze. Because I also think, and I'm not going to put it all down to this, some anxiety and stress is acutely spiritual. Sometimes. Not all the time. But there is an enemy who's out to get us. and He does want to chain us up and depress us and bring us down. And sometimes you can worship your way through that. Because it's selfless and puts our attention on God. So there, in a sense, that tiny list there, which I'll print out and maybe do some other notes in it. They're my things that I would say will reduce low-level disruptive anxiety in your life. If you apply those things, not just slavishly, <laughs> so you're all stressed out. Oh, I had too much to drink. I haven't lived in any kettlebells. I haven't had a walk and seen the ducks. <laughs> and you're stressing yourself out. I'm saying gently bring these ideas into your life. Just so it becomes normal. Like just make normal decisions. I haven't stopped this week. I need to just stop. I need to enjoy a moment with my kids. I'm going to put my phone in my bag. I'm going to have a day off and turn my emails off. Should I finish that bottle of wine off? No, I'll be feeling a bit down this week. I think I'll leave it. Do you see what I mean? It's not like, I've now got a list. I'm going to stress myself out with it. You just make good life choices. And if you are facing some momentous life choices where you realise you've actually been piling stress into your life, we'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. Because maybe some of you have got to change your work or how you're living or putting too much financial pressure on yourself. And it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Because God's got a plan for you. He wants to give you life to the full. We're meant to be full of joy. Aren't we? And so if that's, that's not happening, not like weird, like, if that's not happening, then we've got to think about that.